0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We're thankful for this psalm of thanksgiving and praise, and we're thankful, O Lord, that if we know you, if we've asked you to save our soul from the grave, from our eternal peril, we know the danger we were in, and now with. Uplifted voice of thanksgiving and praise. We can offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving from a heart that's redeemed. You are gracious and merciful. May we revel in that now, for we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, children, I knew you guys would be up here in the service today, so I wanted to have a little story for you guys right at the very beginning. Children, would you mind if I told you a story about a man named Louis? Louis's a really nice guy. Louis's super. Louis' is one of my favorite people. Really is. Louis, when he was a boy, he was a high school student, was a really, really fast. How many of you children think you're fast when you run? OK? Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but I guarantee you're not as fast as Louis was. OK? When Louis was in high school, he ran the fastest mile in California history. When he turned 20 years old, he decided he wanted to run in the Olympics. He didn't want to run the mile, which is what he usually ran, so he decided to run what's called the 5K or the 3 mile. You know what the trouble children was with Louis running the 5K? He'd never run it before. (laughs) But even though he had never run it before, in his second race, he finished second in the country. Only the second time he'd ever run that race, he was the second place finisher in all of our country. He went to the Olympics, and in the the Olympics, the Olympics, he finished in eighth place, eighth place in the world, and it was only the third time he had ever run three miles. Isn't that amazing? Well, a couple years later, World War II came up. He went into the war. He went into what was called the Army Air Force, and he flew bombers. One day, he was told to go on a rescue mission, children, and to find some friends that had gotten lost. What Louis did not know is that his life was about to change forever. While they were flying, going looking for their friends, Louis' plane crashed into the ocean. Most of the people on the plane with him died. He and two friends survived the crash. They got themselves on a life raft, and they floated on top of the ocean. Children, not one day, not two days, not one week, not one month. They floated on top of the ocean, for 47 days, a month and a half, six long weeks, plus five days, almost seven weeks, they floated. And then one day they thought they were saved. A boat came up and found them floating, but it wasn't their friend's. It was the people we were fighting the war against. And Louis ended up in a jail for US soldiers where they hurt him. Children, they hurt him very bad. Children, they hurt him so bad he couldn't ever run again. After the war was over, he came back home and Louis was mad. His whole life had been taken from him. He couldn't run anymore. He'd been hurt and abused and beaten up for no reason. And so Louis thought that maybe marrying his high school sweetheart, he had a girlfriend and he married her. he thought maybe that would help children. Do you think that helped? No. It only made things worse. Well, one day... His wife, who was worried terribly about him, made Louis go with her to hear a man preach. And so Louis went. He didn't want to go, but he went. Before he went, he was having nightmares every night. Children, how many of you are afraid of nightmares? Of course, they're very scary, aren't they? He was having nightmares every night. He was so angry, he was killing himself. But he heard the preacher that night tell him that it was God who kept him alive on that raft. And it was God who kept him alive in prison. And it was God who was keeping him alive now, just so God could forgive him. And Louis accepted that forgiveness. And Louis, you know what Louis did, children? He said, I want to live the rest of my life for Christ. And so Louis started a camp. How many of you children have been up to Pioneer Bible Camp? He started a camp a lot like Pioneer Bible Camp. Just to help children like you. He said, before I ran for myself. And now... I'm running for Christ. Here was a man, here was a man who was exactly where the writer of this psalm was and experienced the same deliverance the writer of this psalm talked about. Now, let's look at this passage right here, the Song of Thanksgiving, Psalm 116. And let's look at the basics very quickly. Now, children, I'm going to stop talking to you guys and start talking to your parents now, okay? But we're going to circle back at the very end and talk a little bit more about my friend Louis. Now, I don't know Louis. I've never met Louis. But we're going to spend eternity in heaven together, so he's my friend, okay? But this psalm has some basics. First of all, I want you to notice right here that we don't have a person who wrote the psalm. There's no doesn't tell us who wrote the psalm. Some people have just said with almost certainty that it was David who wrote it. Maybe David wrote it. There's some language in here that David likes to use. Others have even theorized that Jonah, the prophet Jonah, wrote this psalm. Do you guys remember Jonah? He was the one who was told to go preach in Nineveh. He went all the way across the world, got swallowed by a whale, a great fish. Well, there's a lot of language that's very similar. Could be. We don't know. What we do know is this. This section, uh, Psalms 113 through 18, was called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. These were psalms that Israelites memorized and sang during the Passover. And that's why they're called the Egyptian Hallel Songs, the songs of praise celebrating our redemption from Egypt. And so... It's almost certain that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, when it says, after this they sang a hymn, he sang one of these hymns. In fact, he definitely sang this hymn. Throughout the meal, they would stop and they would remember different psalms and they would sing these, and this was one of the songs he would sing. You can imagine him and his disciples about to sing this song right before Jesus' betrayal and death. There are four phrases from this psalm I want us to keep in mind as we journey through it this morning. Here's the four phrases. They'll match our four points. We're not going to study this psalm in a linear fashion, as in like the psalm writer makes points one, two, and three. The psalm is more thematic. He mixes the themes in and out. He molds them together like a beautiful mosaic. So what are the different colors in the mosaic that we're going to look at individually? Well, here they are. Number one, we've got responsive worship. Number two, mortal danger. Number three, God's deliverance. And number four, grateful resolution. Resolution as in like, I am resolved. Many of you are about to embark on some New Year's resolutions perhaps in a few weeks. That's the idea. Responsive worship mortal danger, God's deliverance, and grateful resolution. Let's look first and foremost, this is a psalm, Psalm 116, of responsive, responsive worship. This psalm is a response to something that God has done. Right here, look at the very first words, I love Yahweh, I love the Lord. In fact, it's even more dramatic in Hebrew. It's "Ah, Ahava, I love. Love right there at the very beginning. I love the Lord. Why? And he's going to say because. Let's look at our translations right here. There are four specific because statements. I love the Lord because he heard my voice. Verse 2, because he inclined his ear. Go down to verse 7. I love the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That word for... For he has dealt, that word for is the same Hebrew word as because. It's very easy to see in the original language. I love the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. And let's look at verse 8 because you have delivered my soul from death. And what we see right here is he is loving and he is worshiping simply as a response to the love that was shined on him. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you? are with your spouse today simply because that person loved you first. That person took an interest in you, took a shine in you, and you were so infatuated and... um, What's the word I'm looking for? You were so honored that they would take notice of you and love you that that stirred something in your own heart And it became easy to love them back. That's in a sense what the writer is saying here. God has done something for me. And he has gone on and enumerated them. God has done something and because of that it stirred love in me. The writer is responding in worship primarily because God was responsive to him. He's saying, what is it about this God that I love? Why am I responding in love to him? Because he responded in love to me. He heard me. Look right here at verse 1. He heard my voice. Verse 1, uh, verse one of chapter 116. He heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. What does that word, pleas for mercy, mean? That's a, ver, that's a word you might want to circle and write a picture for. This is the word that's used for little household pets that like to beg for food under the table. Now, maybe you have a home that encourages feeding the pets table scraps. Maybe you have a house that discourages feeding the pets with table scraps. Whether you encourage it or discourage it, does that stop the dog from whimpering under the table for table scraps? No, they do it anyway. And even if they haven't gotten a thing all these years, they still and then you find out that for decades your children were slipping them snacks under the table when the adults weren't looking. Animals under the table whimpering, begging for food, and your heart is stirred. My wife has been giving me a hard time. We have little outdoor kittens. We keep them because they cats because they keep the rodents down in the summer, and while she was away. I would not only go out there and give them milk in the evening, I warm the milk up in the microwave and give them warm milk. Because as I walked in, they would come up and purr, and I was like, aw. I'll give you warm milk. Well, now they're like beasts when you go out there. They think every time it's warm milk, but I digress. Anyway, this is pitiful moans, whimpering, This isn't so much a content, but a posture. It's a man who's on his knees before the Lord realizing, the most I can do is this pitiful whimper for your help. And God heard that. God heard that. It says in verse 2 that God, it says, because he inclined his ear to me. This is a special Hebrew style of verb that if I could give a picture for it, it would be like this. You're, you're, you're popping your ear out and cupping your hand around your ear so that you make sure to hear it very carefully. That's the posture that this psalm writer says that God has taken just for him. He's, he's inclined his ear to me. Number three, Yahweh responded to these prayers with three distinct actions. In verse 6, he saved. In verse 7, he dealt bountifully, which we'll get to later. And in verse 8, he delivered. It's not that God... We would all acknowledge that God hears these things. We would all acknowledge that God can even incline his ear. But how many of us have fallen into, into the trap of thinking that maybe God didn't care, or that maybe God was neutral in the matter, that God was somehow impassively observing what was going on in our lives. And the writer is observing right here, God not only heard, God not only inclined his ear, but God stirred himself to act on my behalf. He didn't just deliver me. He didn't just save me. His deliverance was so profound, his salvation was so great that my life can only be described now in terms of bounty. God has dealt bountifully with me. God heard and responded, and because of this responsive grace and mercy and deliverance and bounty, my heart explodes with love and gratitude for what God has done. That's our first mosaic tile. Let's move on to our second mortal. Danger. This writer is describing a moment of his life where he was in mortal danger. He says in verse 3 that, in fact, he's going to give five different words, but we've kind of um, categorized them as three in verse verse 5. I'm I'm sorry, in verse 3, he's going to describe this moment in his life. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. These, these snares of death are literally ropes. Almost, You can almost see uh, death is personified here. The grim reaper sending out his lasso. The grim reaper taking his ropes and tying you in, throwing his net around you and drawing it to himself the writer is saying i was helpless i was i was demand to be pitied i'd been drawn into the hands of death itself he says right here that the pangs of sheol laid hold on me the word sheol is simply a greek uh, a hebrew word rather that can mean a, a lot of different things and almost all of them have to do with death it can mean death or the grave or the pit where you would put a dead body. Or it can even mean hell itself. The writer is saying, the long arms of the grave were reaching up and taking hold of me and pulling me down into its dark and dirty depths never to rise again. Death laid hold on me. He says that that wasn't all. Now, I have not experienced this. I was talking with my children a few nights ago about this, though. Now, parents, we've got to be really careful, okay? P- please never talk to your children about war and warfare as though it's a game as though it's exciting, something to be reveled in. Talk to people who've come back from combat. We've had relatives whose job it was to drop shells on villages in Vietnam, and they were never the same They came under fire and for 40 years we're trying to deal with those memories. Police officers in our land have had shots fired at them in anger and they have felt the weight of lead flying at them. And that moment of danger produces trauma that lasts a lifetime. And that's what the writer is saying here. It wasn't just the pangs of death. It wasn't just the ropes, the snares of death. It was the emotional trauma that I experienced afterward. We would call it PTSD that laid hold on me. And in that, I cried out to God. Now, he's going to assess the situation of the mortal danger that he faced in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, he says, My life was in danger of death. The second half of verse 8, he gets even more specific. He says, my eyes from tears. He uses a picturesque phrase here of that my eyes from tears, it's my eyes from springs of water. This endless supply of tears that are constantly coming back up. I can never get away from the crying and the weeping. I weep for no reason. I'm crying all the time. It's his assessment of the situation. He says, My feet were stumbling uh, in verse 8, verse C. And that's a classic Davidic phrase. David uses this phrase all the time. If you're on the run from your enemies and you're using the mountain as cover and you're on a little trail that goats use, you're trying to get over terrain that your enemies aren't willing to cover. And that's going to save you. But if your feet slip, Your escape route becomes your death sentence. And you need your feet to hold that rock. And that's what David is saying. I was slipping. I was slipping. That's what this writer is saying. My feet were stumbling. He says in verse 10 that I was afflicted. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. He says, I believed when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. This word, afflicted, is another picturesque word that the psalm writer uses. Here's the picture of the word. Imagine a lion that has just run down a gazelle. He's grabbed the gazelle and taken it away. And now he stands over the gazelle, but the gazelle is not yet dead. That animal caught, lays there in total submission to what's about to happen next. Can you get that picture? That animal that's about to get killed and devoured by the lion, that animal, and here's our word, is afflicted. David, or the writer of this, psalm, I keep saying David, I'm not sure David wrote it. This writer is saying, I laid there prone, vulnerable, and submissive to what was about to happen to me next. I was afflicted. And he says, in all of this, it was people that was doing this to me. Verse 12, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. The people were doing this to me. They were the ones who were threatening this violence upon me. And they were piling piling on and they were lying. It was their lust for blood, my blood, and the lies they believed about me that caused them to do this. And I laid there in my angst. I laid there in my affliction. And all I could do, seeing that the pangs of death and the the ropes of Sheol, the pangs of death had gathered about me, all I could do was say, pitifully oh god save me now that's a pretty that's a pretty stark description of his life isn't it what happened well we wouldn't be studying the psalm if it just stayed there because it wouldn't be here god heard that god inclined his ear to that and god delivered this writer that's our next point god's deliverance this deliverance is rooted first and foremost, in the gracious character of God. It's rooted in the character of God. It says that God is gracious. Verse five. It's right there. It's in the first words, and it's a it's a very short Hebrew word.
1: Gracious
0: is the Lord. This is a word that's used in exodus twenty two twenty seven because it's a word that hints at the emotions that get stirred in God when he looks upon a situation. We don't know what God's emotional life is like, but here the writer is describing him as feeling grace towards somebody before he acts in grace towards somebody. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, God says, look, I care about a poor man's clothing because when I see him in his frostbitten state, my heart goes out to him. That's grace. It says that God is righteous right here in the character of God. He's gracious. He's also righteous. Now, that word might not sound initially like a great comfort to us. It's often God's righteousness that crushes us in conviction of our sins. But what this is talking about, and this is why I, I personally actually don't think David wrote this psalm. I think somebody else wrote this psalm. I could be wrong. Maybe David will correct me when we're in heaven together. But this is a phrase that's actually used more frequently after the Israelites returned from the exile. I have a couple of examples up here. Daniel 9.7 or Nehemiah 9.8. This is God's righteous response in his promise To deliver when he's asked to deliver. So, for example, if I were to say, if somebody were to come to me and say, I'm I'm struggling, Pastor Greg, with my salvation, I'm not sure I'm saved. And I said, Who, and I would say to you, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called? You would say, Yes. And then I would say, is God unrighteous that he would not keep his word? Oh, God is righteous that he keeps his word. And if he says, I save who calls, then you're saved when you call. Does that make sense, everybody? You can count on it. God is going to save. He says he will. And that's what the writer is referring to. God, you said you would save me if I called, and I called, and you did. Or third, he's merciful. This word compassionate. God is merciful. He's righteous. Verse, what was this? this is verse five. Our God is merciful. The word here, com, merciful, is also used in Psalm 103. As a father pities his children. That's our word. As a father mercies his children. This is also used of a judge who's compassionate toward those who are convicted. God's desire to save, God's desire to rescue. He's not annoyed that you've gotten yourself into this problem. He's not wishing that you wouldn't, that humanity would just keep itself on the straight and narrow. I was got to clean up after you guys. Not at all. God is compassionate and merciful and righteous altogether. It's in his character to want to save and rescue and deliver. And so when God does this, verse 7, he offers concrete blessings. He gets him out of the trouble, but then he just doesn't leave him to his own devices. He continues to pile Mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. Look at verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This word dealt bountifully is a harvester's term. Think of an apple tree. One tree and all the many apples it produces. One. Bushels of apples. And that's what, this word is actually used most commonly with almonds. Now, I'm not an almond farmer, nor am I the son of an almond farmer. But I would imagine that a lot of almonds come from one almond tree. It's a tree, correct? Yes. It's bountiful. Lots of supply through one object. God has supplied bountifully like the most luxuriant uh, almond tree you've ever seen. And it renews almonds year after year after year. It's the idea. Now, let's pause in our thinking right there, okay? Everybody gather your strength back with me very quickly. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Okay, I can recall a time in my life when that was me and God moved toward me and saved me and delivered me little me I didn't deserve it but he did and now I look at my life and I look at how blessed I am what do I do now with that the writer here is going to give us four resolutions in light of how good God's deliverance and continued bounty has been. And these will also serve as our applications, okay? Four resolutions. Four grateful resolutions based on how good God has been. Number one, he says in verse 13, I will celebrate salvation. This is another reason I'm not totally sure that David wrote this psalm. This is not a picture that David uses very often. He says in verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will lift up the cup of salvation. The idea of lifting up a cup is rejoicing in a giant celebratory meal. This has to do, not not just with like a toast at the beginning or at at a wedding reception. This is a a thoughtful meal with family and friends sitting around. And you hold up a cup and you say, this represents the full to overflow flowing blessing that God has given me and you rejoice in it and you celebrate it and enjoy and feasting with friends and family and loved ones you hold up this God who's redeemed you it's not just something you're here to listen to about on a Sunday morning you go out of your way as a part of your course to publicly praise the God who has saved you. Number two, I will publicly call on the name of the Lord. And I want us to notice there are two of these resolutions that he repeats. In verse 13 and in verse 17, I will call on the name of the Lord. Now go down to verse 17 and call on the name of the Lord. Right here, he's repeating this and it's a public call. And to call on the name of the Lord is inherent in that idea of the name of the Lord. Like, why would you say, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord? Okay? I- imagine on my wife's birthday, I-, I got up here and I said, I want to call on the name of Danielle. You would say, well, why don't you just say happy birthday to Danielle, right? <laughs> well, this is a fancy way of Wanting to augment somebody's reputation. Okay? The name of the Lord is the, per, a person's reputation. We would say it this way. He has a good name in the community. Good reputation in the community. People in the community think well of this individual. And here, you're, he, this, the psalmist is resolving in light of the deliverance I've been given, in light of the ongoing bounty. Repeatedly, I'm going to draw everyone's attention to the reputation of this God. He saved me and he'll save you too. And none of this is done in a corner. None of this is done in a closet. It's all done in public view. Number three. He says, I will publicly pay my vows. And again, this is one that's repeated. Verse 14. I, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Verse Uh, 18. I will pay my vows to the Lord. I think this idea of vow paying is something that we've missed out on a little bit. We don't make a lot of vows in American Christianity. In fact, we hear the biblical admonition, and let's call this a good thing to be careful about making vows. Well, in an earlier era, vows were a much more common part of following the Lord. And maybe they had a better idea than we do. Either way, When he was in these straits, he talked to the Lord about how he would respond to the Lord should the Lord get him out of this pickle. Well, the Lord did. And so now he's going to publicly proclaim it again. This is not under a rock, it's not in a closet, it's not done in secret. He's doing this very publicly, deliberately. So all can see he's going to make, he's going to do his part. Or God did his. And then last, verse 17. I will make a sacrificial offering of thanks. He says right here, verse 17, I will offer to you the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Okay? now what does he mean by the sacrifice of thanksgiving? Well, it's possible in fact, almost certainly part of it, the Old Testament law required that Israelites offer a sacrifice offering when they wanted to give thanks. This was, you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 12. Jonah talks about it in 2, verse 9. Or the, I believe it's David who talks about it in Psalm 50, verse 14. A sacrifice of thanks. And so you know, when you read about these sacrifices... The Israelite would bring bread and salt and oil. Now, and they would offer it generally to the priests so that the priests could eat. Now, you think, well, that's cool. Like when I get a hankering for some bread, I just go to the valley market and I pay a couple bucks and I get some garlic bread or whatever bread they have. This was something more than just a single loaf of bread. This is actually quite a big allotment of bread. You would go to the expense of acquiring a good portion of it, quite a bit of it, enough to feed several hundred priests, and you would get the oil and the salt that would go with it. And you would go present that sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. It was a demonstration of gratitude that, God, you gave to me my life, and now I want to give to you of my life as a reflection of how good you've been to me. This was a a sacrifice that cost this writer something. This was his resolution. I will give something of myself. What would it look like? What would it look like if a person got hold of these resolutions? I think I know. Maybe a little bit. You remember my introduction about Louis? Louis Zamperini? When he was, by the way, I think Pastor Dom will like this. When he was in the prison camp in Japan, to keep his fellow prisoners encouraged, he would tell them Italian recipes of food to try to encourage them that maybe if they got out, they could have meatballs and and uh, sausage, and pasta. Uh, the trouble is he was making most of it up, okay? Because he was just trying to keep him encouraged, so he would just toss in whatever he thought sounded good, okay? The prisoners who were with him remembered that. They all talked about it afterward. We would just wait on pins and needles to hear Louis's latest recipe. Okay? Well, he, as I told you, got saved. He gave his life to a camp in California to troubled youth. He would have 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds who were at risk. They'd go hiking, go horseback riding. They would go kayaking, mountain, mountain climbing. And his message to them was that God would deliver them from their trouble just like God delivered him from trouble. The only reason we know anything about Louis Zamperini is not because Louis did anything to make himself publicly known, but a very skilled writer named Laura Hillenbrand got a hold of his story, wrote a book about it, was later made a movie. Well, that would be all well and good, right? Friends, Louis took several trips to Japan to meet with the prisoners who heard him and he would tell them and he did all this on his own nickel and he would tell them that God delivered him and God will deliver you God will be gracious to you God will save you now friends there was there was one person who hurt him the most there was one person that hurt him the most and he wrote that personal letter here's the letter this is louis talking he says as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment my post-war life became a nightmare It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension and stress and humiliation that caused me to hate you with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live unto the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble but thanks to a confrontation with God, through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate that I had for you. And Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the criminals, at, uh, criminals of war at Sugumo Prison. I asked them about you. And was told that you had probably committed suicide, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, as also with the other criminals, I forgave you. And now, I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. Do you hear that? That's what it sounds like when Psalm 116 resolutions take hold. I'd encourage you to give that some consideration this week. Resolve to offer God grateful praise for the pit that He delivered you out of. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to know you, to respond well to you, to trust you, and to follow you? Fill us with grateful praise, for you have delivered our souls from the pit. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.